inclusive design inclusion is a word that we need to use more and more um, in especially the architecture industry because I think for an industry that prides like progressiveness so much that it's not inclusive. So you're waiting in line, complaining on social media, or talking to friends about something that just doesn't work for you. How often do we think, if only the designers had thought of this or that, there's often some really easy fix that we all know would make something much, much better than it is already. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kamaragal people, the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and of course, emerging. We're so excited to have you all here today with us. So often things are designed for us, but here we explore the magic that happens when we design with people, not just for them. In this episode, we speak to Panar Givech, who embodies the ethos of designing not for people, but with them. Look out for her tips on how to start conversations when you've got diverse communities. So let's get into it. So I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest today, Panar Givech. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Manisha. And it's actually night time for you, right? So I'm saying today because it's morning for us, but you're in New York at the moment. Correct. And it's, well, it's late evening, not night, uh, but yeah, we're uh, later in the day. So I'm very grateful that we're actually able to talk nowadays and, and, you know, technology has changed so much. I think two years ago, the idea of us starting our podcast with somebody in New York would have been really unheard of. Um, so the world has become a little bit closer ho- to home and far away at the same time. I I agree 100%. I think if there's any silver lining of like last year, it just it created more access globally and everybody became more, you know, open to being in digital presence, which connected us more. But we do miss hugs. And also there is um, a huge other discussion on like, what if people don't have access to computers or internet? Um, but in our end, at least we're together because of it. So Absolutely. And for people who haven't met Panar before, uh, we've been talking for a while, actually, actually through COVID. But um, Panar is actually a partner at SAO, which is an architectural and digital firm based both in Istanbul as well as New York. And they've created unique and timeless experiences um, using human-centric design. Now, that last sentence is obviously one that has come from your site. Uh, Can you tell us what that actually means? Well, I think we're a very uh, mission-driven studio. Our mission is to address social and urban problems through architecture and design. And obviously, it is a very big mission. And um, we are a lean team. We intend to be that way and not turn into a corporate anytime soon. So that calls us uh, to really be doing collaborations uh, with everyone, including uh, people who are the end users, really. So uh, that really enables us to do comprehensive research and proper synthesis of what we're researching and really be able to create design solutions for the problems that we're trying to address. So um, we are, we're genuine believers in like, bringing people in to the process and not 
necessarily just have them give feedback later on, uh, yeah, right. which is kind of uncommon. I would say like in architecture industry, maybe a bit more uh, common practice, more and more so in like product design. Um, but we try to uh, really uh, do that in any type of projects that we do and really be open about it too and share our experience so it creates more of a conversation in our industry. Right. And as you said, this is actually quite unusual. So how did you end up in this space and place in the first place? I think so we we set up shop here in New York City around like 2015. Right prior to that, uh, we won a competition in um, Istanbul. It was an international design competition, architectural design competition uh, for a radio TV tower, which sort of like winning that led to, I guess, like the initial ideas of even like opening up a studio. Um, and then uh, my partner is an architect and uh, who worked with Zaha Hadid for about like 10 years. Uh, obviously uh, has I mean, was equipped with like working in like various different typologies because that's what Zaha's style is uh, and also sort of saw like the transition of a company growing for, from like a 20, 30 people to a 200 something wow. by the time that he left. Um, so th- that was also a big like learning curve in terms of like um, how do you stay in touch with the design? So that was already like a very much... Uh, a thing that we were keen on um, and maybe also became sort of our like, um, you know, uh, chicken or egg thing. Like, yes, we want to grow and do all the cool projects in the world, but we never want to like scale that much. So how does that happen? It's always something that we like to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, so that was like early on before I think we even like discovered our identity was very much like, how do we stay true to design? Um, why does our designs matter like why are we putting them out there in the world to begin with and how do we always stay in touch so that was like always the motivation and um so when we like when we were both in Istanbul and New York uh, as of like 2015 uh as we started to work on projects we more and more felt that we had a responsibility um with a team with such diverse skill sets and capabilities, we felt we had a responsibility that we had to um, deliver to the world, really. Um, so I think with that, starting around like 2017, we started to discuss, look, we do a lot of research for all of our projects. Um, we ask a lot of questions, but it doesn't help the industry if we ask, ask these questions internally. Um, so we really need to open up the conversation. And we really need to more uh, be direct on like why we're here and if we really do want to address problems. And if at, if not that, like at the very least, create a unique experience to elevate sort of like the global landscape around like architecture and design. So we felt like more stronger and stronger about our responsibility was sort of kind of resulted in our um rebranding i guess last year right where we just decided to uh name ourselves sour and not only because you know the word was like a play for us around the words of social and urban but also um we felt like it represented our attitude we we thought you know the world is doing enough sugar coating and we want right. to be more real and have real conversations and really um you know, try to have a mission within every project that we're working on too. Uh, so that is kind is kind of our journey as a young firm. So when you talk about that, though, um, what are some of the projects that you actually work on? So 
that really encapsulate that that I love that idea of um, what sour means because we always hear about you know if life gives you lemons you make lemonade. Um, so I'd love yeah. to hear about your lemonade projects. <laughs> oh, of course! Oh my God, there's so many. So I guess like before, like talking about the typologies, it would make sense like how we work as a business model because I think it's a little bit unconventional compared mm-hmm. to many architecture firms. So let's say like in one side we have client projects you know, just like regular commissions that we might get. And then, uh, and on the other end, because we're so research driven, we come up with our own concepts and challenges, which then turns into like self-commission projects, which we then either go and pitch to clients or we submit it to a competition or, you know, use it as a research. So um, with that, we have, um, I guess, like typology wise, we have always worked across like different typologies from urban design to architecture to product design. And um, like currently this results in like uh, we were working on an urban design uh, project in Istanbul, which sort of uh, looked into how to um sort of like uh, revive a square, a very uh, famous public square of mm-hmm. Istanbul um, that sort of lost this identity over the uh, like past right. years. And we looked into opportunities of how can we reactivate the space through arts activities um, and um, really just like greenery and engage the public back in. So that's like something on the urban scale. On the architectural scale, we're working on probably the world's last recording studio that will ever be built. Um, So like in that, you know, not only we're exploring a lot around building materiality and how do we set up a circular model in in construction where there's actually no setup in the market because it's an island in Turkey. um, We're also like really trying to identify what does a unique sound look like for this space? Um, because right. if anybody's going to travel to record their own songs there as a band, uh, why would they want to go there? So it's a very sensory uh, experience that we're working on there. Uh, and maybe like on a product a scale, we're currently working on uh, rugby caps, actually, Uh and see how we might make them accessible to uh, children with autism, um, right. especially with the ones uh, that have sort of um, uh, sensitivity to, towards loud sounds. So uh, that is one project that we're working on, um, I guess, in Ireland. Um, and one maybe example on like the interior, uh, interior is where we're working on a... Um, a I guess like the maybe like for us is the first like office space um, that we're exploring, you know, um, post COVID. Mm -hmm. So it is not only like well informed by our like sustainability and adaptability uh, criteria, but also now very much so focused on well-being. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is also, I guess, more feasible because now we are more aware of the importance of that as an industry. So it makes um, our lives easier to be able to pitch that and present the research and apply the uh, design directives from the research on our designs. Look, so that's, that's like a very goodness. quick overview of different typologies. And there's so many different projects there. And I, I kind of want to pick into all of them and, and deep dive into all of them. So I'm picking sound today just because um, 
It sounds so fascinating. When you look at a project like that that's on an island in Turkey and you've obviously got an incredible diverse team within your organisation, how do you bring humans into it and who who are you – how – and who are those humans that you bring in when you think about human-centered design on a project like that? I think it just starts off with like first, like what in the very basic way, like how would our we would create our persona diagram, right? Like who is right. going to that destination or would want to go to that destination to begin with? Like in addition to the locals who might be using it, because yes, it is a recording studio, but it also will come with um, around 12 rooms because if, let's say, you want to travel there with your band and you're going to stay there throughout your recording, it serves as a hotel too, right? So it then becomes a hospitality project. And then you're looking at like, who would want to go there anyway? So that really like uh, helps us look into the project in terms of everyone's perspectives. And then we go into doing individual, I guess, exploration sessions, I would call them with all the user groups. Uh, like the m- most recent one uh, that we're having now is with artists um, who actually do often record in recording studios in different uh, genres. So they can be classical, they can be like alternative rock bands, Um or just really in pop music and um, really try to understand like, why do you pick one studio over another? Mm -hmm. Um, And this especially becomes an important conversation when, when we're looking at like the recording studios throughout the world, really, even like the most like top ones that the top artists go to, they look very similar. They're probably Mm -hmm. all equipped with the best technologies And there's like certain criteria around, you know, acoustics and insulation and, uh, and then they meet the criteria. But then the question is, well, what does uh, make a unique sound? Like Mm. how, like, we have like watched so many documentaries around this, like working on this project, then artists know where the recording happened by just listening to the track. Are you serious? They can and actually tell. that's fascinating to us. And that's not something I can understand or relate to. But then, like, how do they understand? What type of feeling are they looking for, really? Like, what are they trying? Like, what what is what type of a unique sound is good to a certain extent? And what would actually be bad? You know, like, you actually need to talk to the artists themselves to really understand um, what are they looking for in a studio? And why would they want to go there again? Um so when you're like working on such like different projects every time, you really do need to have people in the process who are actually using it, right? Uh, like not only on the very end, like doing the design and say what you think, um, at that point, we believe it's too late. Like, I think they have to be part of the research um really position them as experts because they are the experts in the field and really hold expert interviews with them and then uh, have co-ideation sessions during ideation and before even like going into design um so that their wants and needs would really inform the design itself and then we can go into you know feedback around the design or prototyping if that's possible and so how does that work when you know, we find this a, a lot in our work as well, where when you bring um, people into that studio or into that space and we listen to other people's ideas, I think sometimes as practitioners, it's very easy to go from listening to a problem to solution mode and missing that co-design space. How yeah. do you think about this when you're bringing on, 
new teams, young, different people, so not necessarily um, people who are as well-versed in this area as, you know, yourself and your partner are, but as new people come on board, how do you help them to actually or facilitate that process of co-design rather than solution design, if you like? I think um, I think the best insights, which kind of like is frustrating when we see like in the general landscape how quantitative data is usually more powerful than qualitative data. Yeah. We find the best insights in qualitative data, which comes with like casual conversations. Yeah. And, you know, not everybody uh, coming to the team or to sessions really understand what the end result might be or what are going to be the deliverables or what is even architecture, you know, but they come with the expertise within their own domain. Mm. And all we need is that for that from them is to have an open conversation with us. Right. So, um, so I think the question more there is like to enable that transparency and genuine feedback how do you set up a comfortable environment for them to just have a conversation with you so you can really listen? I think, um, you know, we are guilty, like, and it's a constant exercise to not like rush to a judgment or, you know, wait for our turn to ask our own questions or like, uh, you know, come to a decision because we have no time with the deadline, but we just really need to listen. And as we listen more, I think that presents the best insights for design anyway. So, that's why I think like what we do like in our effort is really we start off with these like really weird exercises uh, that sort of would, you know, no matter where you are in the world or what language you speak, it would kind of just be a common ground and just we can goof around a little bit and then go into a conversation about like very unstructured and comfortable and we don't ask them to do anything like if you know let's say we're using mirror boards we would facilitate on their behalf because we don't we don't want them to worry about anything but only you know share their experience with us and feel comfortable when they're doing so um it's harder when you're doing digital i think like you know in a physical space like with food and like with some i don't know exercises and meditation and whatnot like it's it's a it's a much Mm. uh i think um warm uh, setup to do that but i think you know uh we've been like exploring ways to like sort of create that comfort over zoom as well so that's so cool i want to know what one of these exercises are can we try one well first of all we um like uh, we love gifts um right. and i don't know like depending part of the world some people call gifs we call gifts i don't yes, even know we what call it right. gifts as well <laughs> yeah you can fact check <laughs> that's the right podcast. um so we do like we give a um we give a prompt sentence and then we ask them to pick a gif that right. sort of makes them think whatever that sentence says. And then we sort of talk about our gift. Um, sometimes like we do, uh, we create our own, um, I guess, creatures. Um, like one uh, we did recently was that everybody designed their own monster, what a monster should look like. And then we voted for our monsters, you know, and just talked about monsters. Uh, sometimes like if we know the group, like have a certain like um, or like interests, we sort of pick a subject around that and just sort of have a casual conversation around that almost as if like, you know, um, the group is like huge Harry Potter fans. So we're talking about like which Hogwarts house you belong to and why and just, you know, Um, so everything but the project, uh, we can sort of uh, have an exercise on and just chat and then slowly uh, warm up to the project with just 
project related questions, but not necessarily the project itself, Mm -hmm. uh, because it's our job as uh, the designer or the architect at the table to sort of understand what the answers to those questions might be for the design. It's not their responsibility. Right. So really like uh, find out questions that are uh, relatable, accessible and meaningful to the Mm -hmm. uh, group that we're having the session with and try to like sort of generate insights from those and slowly also like build up into more specifics about the project. Look, I really love that. And I love this idea of actually finding common ground and meaning before looking for meaning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, food is generally a very like, Mm -hmm. you know, common, like it's a great icebreaker. It's just, you know, you can chat over food, you can chat over clothes. So there's a lot like when you're in person, there's so many more things to sort of like, you know, let's know each other and create a friendly environment and a comfortable and really like a, I guess, space of, um, I want to say security, because like you feel secure to be honest about what you think. Um, It's easier like in, you know, um, doing in person uh, in that sense. Uh, So losing food is like a big challenge on these sessions. Food factor. And then what about different countries? Because in the four projects you mentioned, they're all in different countries. Do you find that there's a difference? In I mean, it's interesting, right? Because food obviously transcends every culture in every country. But yeah. do you find differences between different cohorts in different countries? Or is it more different types of people? Where, where are the differences and similarities sit? Oh, 100%. And I think with that, we are uh, very uh, big on having uh, local consultants right? Uh, okay. even before having the session. So that is common uh, in architecture in the sense that, let's say, as an architect, you're working on a project in a different country, you are supposed to have a local architect uh, right. or maybe a sustainability consultant or a mobility consultant uh, uh, sort of like experience in the region. But we actually like to reach out to also maybe anthropologists or sociologists or a historian in the area to sort of like really like, you know, we can offend people. We can say Mm -hmm. something that no one might find funny, you know, like we we can just like be very awkward. And so like we really need to like prep ourselves to have that like conversation first with people who really know the culture and also have them present uh, in the sessions, Um, because I think that common factor is sort of like the bridge uh, that person uh, plays uh, as part of the team is super important to create that sort of, um, yes, this is a space of trust and I feel comfortable here and like this is my domain. Right. And I mean, I think that when we think particularly about architecture and products, there's this unintended consequence that comes from our own biases, right? And we've seen this through history. Well, we've seen the intended consequence of um, particular design decisions that are exclusive, if you like. How do you think about those unintended consequences, um, those biases that we all have? um, And how does that play out when you're thinking about working with people? Yeah, I think, I mean, it is a common, uh, very common problem. And I guess like regardless of the industry, Mm. it is like as we become or feel like we become more and more experts in a domain, um, 
even if we don't do it literally, we sort of, we could talk over people, right? Or decide on behalf of people because we think it's the best for them. It's like acting like a doctor. Uh, whereas even in a doctor situation, they don't know the 360 life of that person. You know, you may be giving prescriptions to the person and maybe they have uh, tendencies to addiction and maybe they shouldn't be using drugs. Like all of, you know, um, like having a very informed decision for a community or a person is actually very, very, very hard. Mm. Um, which is why, like going back to what I said in terms of listening, I think if we sort of like stop ourselves really, and it gets harder, like I'm a person who talks a lot. Like I think the more I, you know, am in the business too, I think it's, it will be harder for me to like, just stop talking, but it really just comes to that because the reason why you're even, uh, I think the, like the uh, planned and practice sessions help for that because you know, you're there to listen to them. Right. So right. once you create your own boundaries on like mm. how you're going to interact, it's easier to do that. But if you're, if you don't have those panel discussions or um, just like some type of um, code, like generative process within your design processes, how are you going to do that? Like you are going to go by however you thought was the best practice. So, you know, the more you're experienced and know, the more you know how something can be built or constructed. So you, the more you decide on behalf of other people. Yeah, right. And then before you know it, you realize the project and then people are giving like terrible feedback about the project right. and you didn't even involve anyone in the, uh, in the process. Yeah. I think having a generative process really sort of disciplines you to sort of like pull yourself back and recognizing, oh, I'm bringing in different experts to the team for a reason. I'm just going to listen to them. And um, when when you're in that like curated and safe space, you do know that person actually comes with useful advice for you. And you're already ahead of the game for like having a conversation with them, you know? So I think once you're in that awareness you're not defensive about anyone's feedback. You're not trying to like prove your point over somebody else. It Mm. stops becoming about you and it just starts becoming the design process itself. Right. So it depersonalizes it completely, which is lovely. Yeah. And, And I think that leads to inclusive design, right? As well. 100%. I think, um, you know, inclusive design, inclusion is a word that we need to use more and more um, in especially the architecture industry, because I think, um, you know, what the industry, well, first of all, for an industry that prides like progressiveness so much that it's not inclusive, mm-hmm. right? Like from uh, gender differences to racial differences to ability differences. Like I think uh, we're seeing that regardless of the country in the workforce um, and that reflects in the outcomes. So um, if you are not in tune with other communities, the project you're going to create for that community is not going to speak for the community, nor it's going right. to become successful and it's going to feel very top down. Um, so I think, uh, we first need to start with like changing our mindset. If you can employ, employ, if you can't employ, collaborate, bring us consultants, do the expert sessions, whatever you're doing, but really, um, reach out and create a first inclusive process. If you really want to create an inclusive design, um, and like, for example, even like in terms of, um, accessibility, we now like prefer to use the word inclusion more and more because 
in the field of architecture, when we talk about accessibility, the general thoughts, especially in like in the States is like, oh, okay, ADA, like physical access. So exactly. like a bathroom and like, you know, an elevator, but it's so much more than that. Right. And um, that's why we need to change our understanding. Like just because a law passed like years ago, that doesn't mean we're like at the progress level that we should be, nor that does it also like represent uh, so many diverse groups. Um and that's why I think like using like, oh, like this project is accessible, like that started to become a disservice to the industry right. itself because it's tied to like just like a certain regulations and we assume like, okay, like we're accessible, but we're really not. Oh, it's like the lowest common denominator. And I mean, I think exactly. just thinking about what you were saying about the profession as a whole, as a woman in architecture, can you tell us about the experiences of being, you know, we know it's still a male-dominated industry, right? Do you know why? Because yeah, as we're talking and I was thinking about this, it doesn't sound like it should be. You know, I, I don't understand why architecture would be male-dominated. Um, sounds like <laughs> well, a really like odd so question oriented that we tend to like plan every second of our days right right um yeah i mean i think like i've been i guess in the like real estate industry for maybe since like 2011 now right uh, in different roles like i used uh -huh. to be in consulting uh, i worked with developers and brokerage firms also majority male yeah. um and then you know i became partner here at sour and I think I've been in uh, environments where uh, you're you're heard, but not really. Right. Um, like your opinion comes second. Uh, I um, uh, so sometimes felt that I was just invited to the room to so that they can say there's a female in the room. Wow. Um, you know, like you definitely do feel. Um, you have to change yourself in order to be heard, mm -hmm. uh, which is why uh, so many women that I know that are in, that are successful in the industry are very, um, I don't want to say men-like because, you know, there are like very like gentlemen-like men and then there are men that are... Um, but they have to play the let's system. Say, let's just say very rude. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I've seen uh, like so many women also blending into that like harsh character. Um mm -hmm. And I think that became uh, something that I've been more uh, and more conscious about that, like, it, I think the hardest thing in the world is to remain yourself despite everyone else and everything mm. else. Uh, like, I'm a person who smiles a lot. And uh, I thought about, like, when I was younger, I thought, okay, I'm going to be more serious in meetings. I'm just, you know, I'm going to be very firm. I'm not going to be myself. And then I think like also, you know, uh, being a mom helps you with that. Like how, what type of model I'm setting up for her if I'm like faking to be someone else in business environment. Right. So like in, in the, like, especially the past few years, I uh, sort of, um, I guess, uh, told myself that I was just going to be myself. And I don't care if how that like reflected in a business setting or if I was, if we weren't getting a client because that wasn't perceived well, or because I wasn't harsh or putting people down, you know, I think um, we have the responsibility to all the women following us into the industry to just like be ourselves because we 
bring so much assets into the industry, the sector itself by just being us, you know, like clearly it's a very dysfunctional industry. Um, it is one of the most archaic industries. Like there's a very famous saying that we love that says like, if the car industry was like, um, a construction industry, we would still be riding horse carriages. Oh, wow. Like, the mindset is so backwards. There is uh, no room for innovation, prototyping, which is why uh, we're so lagging in you know, sustainability, circularity, access or innovation in built environment in general. Um, so we clearly, you know, the current recipe or the workforce or the big players, it's not working. Um, so we need more of our touch in there. And I think uh, by changing ourselves to survive in the industry, that's also not working. Um, so I think it becomes easier as you get more experience. And, um, I, but I think it's a challenge for a, a young woman to enter the industry, mm -hmm. even still today, um, to sort of really remain uh, true to themselves and not change their personality. But um, you know, I think now, like if I would give advice to mm. my, like, I guess, 23 year old self, I would just say like, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's a beautiful way to sort of end this conversation as well is, um, we will be fine. Right. Yeah. It's just, you know, going back to, I guess, transparency and honesty and like mm. being true. Mm. Like, I think, you know, I do have more faith in, Gen Z and onwards, I think they, you know, they're really calling out for authenticity and really questioning things where maybe us millennials started it, but um, we, we really didn't maybe like call out on uh, companies or people who really weren't true to themselves or to what they're saying. Right. Um, so I think it's going to shift. Um, it may take generations, but the shift has started already. And I think us also as, you know, next generations, either teachers or role models or parents, um, we kind of have to be on board with that too, because, you know, um, they, they also learn by example. And I think, you know, we learn so much from our elders, but we also learn so much from our young people, um, from the time they're born on because it's that mirror to ourselves right yes i like if you think of the, i never forget this in our podcast actually we were interviewing duncan baker brown who's also a professor on a circular design and environments uh, right. in england and he was saying first time ever my freshman students are climate strikers right <laughs> i'm like Wow, like that's right. very powerful. So, like going into architect the field of architecture with that mindset already, mm. you're like ten steps ahead. Absolutely, absolutely, um, and 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 that's wonderful. And and you know, you can see how if we take your framework and this idea of how we collaborate with people, and then change the people we're collaborating with, all of a sudden magic happens. Uh, exactly, and really. Um, I, I don't, I think we also need to change the mindset around like, you know, everything glorious we do, we market, but everything wrong we do, we sort of like hush mm. about it. And especially if we're not a big company and we don't have the budgets to sort of like, um, make everything possible, we will make mistakes. Um, and we may not be able to realize all the goals in a project, but I think it again, like if we have like if we want to really address any problem, it has to be collaborative. People need to be talking about the issues that they're facing in projects and really encourage almost 
what would be open sourcing in the tech world right. uh, among our own industry and peers and just saying like, okay, like if we are like more transparent about our processes, it would we will all actually be better for it. Um, so I think if making mistakes also fine, like if you really like failed in one project, like owning that and learning from it is also okay. It's just like, we just need to make progress and improve ourselves one way or another and not just make an excuse saying like, oh, it's all or nothing. I can't do anything on that anyway. So I'm not going to do it. Right. Like, start somewhere, you know, and we all can. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And, you know, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been absolutely a joy and a pleasure to talk to you as always. Um, and thank oh you, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, that was. No, I just said like, oh, my God, like, yes, like, it's such a treat to always talk to you. And you, I feel like if pen pals still existed, yes. like you would we be, would be pal, pen pals, 100%, 100%. <laughs> um, it is. It's It's always really invigorating talking to people who have similar mindsets but work in different industries as well. Yes. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the With Not For podcast. If inclusive design is something you'd like to learn more about or if you'd like to work with us, please do connect us at the Centre for Inclusive Design or myself on LinkedIn or head to our website, centerforinclusivedesign.org.au. The links can be found in the episode show notes.